people process information in different ways, but they process information very quickly, typically. And if you give them something that is very hard to read, the font, the logo, the design, all of that starts to add up. And then you go talk to another advisor and it's very well polished. You have a banking logo, for example, a top right, looks crisp, one page. People make decisions and trade-offs all the time. But if you're showing me something that looks crisp, it's easy to process and go through, I think you have a higher likelihood of retaining or gaining a client. Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Connected Advisor. I'm your host, Kyle Van Pelt, CEO and co-founder of MileMarker. And today I have the privilege of being joined by Clifton Schaller. Clifton is the chief growth officer at Future Vault. He is a Renaissance man. He is a veteran of visiting Italy. He even studied over in Italy and he has done a bunch of really cool things. So I think we're going to have a great conversation today about the future of the wealth management industry, but also drop some knowledge and insight for all of you on things unrelated to work. So Cliff, thanks so much for joining the show, man. Super excited. Good to see you and looking forward to this. Absolutely. So I actually got to kick this show off with a personal question outside of the industry. So uh, in my research, I saw that your son's name is Enzo. Is there <laughs> any relation to Enzo Ferrari with that name or is it a completely different story altogether? Oh, great question. And, you know, one of the most important things in my life. So it's a funny story. So the quick story is, is that our son is named after my no, no, which is grandfather in Italian. His name is Vincenzo. And uh, my wife and I could not decide on a name. You know, we, we knew we were having a boy. It came down to hair color. And as you can see, I've not been blessed with just beautiful luscious locks, but my wife does have beautiful black, you know, um, Italian hair. I'm very pro Enzo. My wife loved the name Luca. I was like, look, you know, Luca essentially means light in Italian. So I'm like, if he comes out with blonde hair as I was born blonde, crazy, but I was born blonde, uh, which then eventually fell out. I was like, let's go Luca with light hair. We'll go Enzo dark hair. He came out with dark hair. We, we did Enzo. No relation to Enzo, but his first word was car. Oh, um, so maybe we'll see. And he is that, a Ferrari Ferrari fan by uh by force. Uh, I no mean, who? If, yeah, everybody's a Ferrari fan, really, right? I mean, some of the most beautiful machines uh, to ever touch the road. Um, Absolutely. What a cool story. <laughs> yeah. What a cool story, man. Well, um, well, speaking of stories, one of the ways I love to start this is uh, with with something that was actually inspired by a friend and previous guest, Tony Steech, uh, and and we're calling it your money moment. So. You know, we've just found that almost everybody who's ended up working in this industry had some moment in their life that we kind of refer to as their money moment. It was something that got them interested in what happens in this industry, how it gets here and everything. So, you know, Cliff, tell us what what was your money moment? You know, I, even before the money moment, I, I fell into this industry by complete chance. I had always known the banking industry at a very, very surface level, obviously advisement. Um, and asset management, but it was just never something in college or even in grad school. I'd studied economics that I was like, I know for a fact, this is what I want to do. And, you know, I started my career at Morningstar, which is an unbelievable place to work and start a career professionally, um, not working for myself. I was so entrepreneurial when I finished school that I wanted to do something for myself out of the gate and then went and worked for a big, you know, Fortune 500 corporate company. At Morningstar, you know, in my career is 
full of lots of different turns uh, in a short amount of time, which has been incredible. But really what the money moment was is meeting people working in user experience design and research and finally hearing firsthand how big and macro is the work in, let's just say, serviceability of what we do every day. How many millions of people are impacted by the work that we do? And sometimes, you know, it's easy to wake up and think it's all about the technology or the transformations taking place. But at the end of the day, there's millions and millions of people. I mean, if you want to go global, billions of people that are impacted by the movement of money, macro environments like the one we're currently in right now, liquidity, investment. So, you know, I'd call it, you know, cap the capital size of, you know, deployment of capital and raising. So it's all cyclical in a way. So when I came into Morningstar, it was always just a thing that happens in the world. And then starting my career there, it gets real, real fast, especially getting so close to the customer and hearing how personal this is. And then ultimately, how can we help? Right. And I've spent my entire career in this industry meeting wonderful people and hearing stories of, of success, failure, friction. So I guess you could say my money moment was jumping in head first, getting to know the customer for the asset manager, the advisor constraints, the portfolio manager, the advisory side of the arm. So wealth side of the arm, the individual investors, they're doing all of this on their own. So that would be something that first comes to mind where I started saying to myself, like, wow, this is really impactful. And the things that we do on a day-to-day, week-to-week, sprint-to-sprint, quarter-to-quarter, year-to-year, we, we sometimes get hung up on share price or valuations. But at the end of the day, like we're making impact on people in the, one of the most important things of their life, which is their financial success over time horizon. And it's fluid. It always changes. So that's something that comes to mind out of the gate. That's excellent. I love that. Uh, and not many better places than Morningstar to get sort of a view of the entire industry, right? There's not many companies in this space that serve asset managers, that serve investors, that serve advisors, that serve, I mean, that work with the technology providers. I really do think they touch almost every aspect of the industry in some way, shape or form. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that's one of their pillars, right, is people. And I, <laughs> I made it a point, uh, to get to know as many people as possible. And it's a big company, right? In mm -hmm. Chicago and global company, you know, but there are so many great people and I call them like the Morningstar alumni, right? That are just all over the industry and my reputation and my relationships, I take very seriously and never want to burn a bridge because it's such a small industry, even though it's massive. And look, uh, you know, from the bagels on Wednesdays, now I think they're doing donuts. So they've definitely upgraded a bit, I guess, to, you know, some of the things we accomplished while I was there, right? Like the true innovation and the true exciting milestones we accomplished along the multiple roles and um, business units I worked alongside, you know, great people. Yeah, it was a great place to kick things off. Yeah. And your role there was you were you were like a UX researcher. Is that right? Uh, yes. user experience for those who don't know what UX is. So user experience researcher and then and then leading into product manager with that knowledge. Is that right? That's right. So UX design and design part, I say with a lowercase um, D, just because I was surrounded by people that, you know, they went to school for design, they went to school for, you know, art theory. And I felt like I was pretty creative walking in the door and then you're surrounded by professionals and you're like, whoa. So I learned a lot from the design community and how much design plays in a, you know, an imperative role into good looking software and bad looking software, even print design. So I, I was truly blessed with the amount of people that I was ex got exposure to and learned a lot and listened a lot. I was somewhat of a fish out of water being an econ guy that likes business, capital markets, 
corp dev. So it, it, it was a little unique, but I, you know, you try to learn, right? With the people around you. And that was a natural then fit into product management. And, you know, you know, I have a friend that, that taught me and I'll never forget. He's like, look, at the end of the day, when you move from one role to another, they just, people want to make sure you can be a plumber, right? Connecting pipes, making sure stuff flows, information, you know, populates on a screen, fixing stuff. And uh, I was, a, you know, it's called a glorified plumber when I started. And then eventually it moved into much more of a general manager type role um, where you're working with sales, customer success, the business unit leader, you got a really strong business unit leader that's uh, now somewhere else and another business unit leader that's somewhere else. So we had outstanding leadership and mentorship to really teach and train me at a very, very early part of my career on how to run a business. Massive, right? 100,000 plus, you know, customers using a platform, over $100 million, you know, portfolio of recurring revenue. So we're not talking small startup, you know, tiny stuff. We're talking a big, massive thing that you're going to have to do quarterly, you know, reporting on for earnings. So it was a big deal. And luckily I had a lot of great people that kind of shepherd me along the way. And I learned a lot from a lot of people. I took kind of best practices from many people and tried to do the best job I possibly could, which was super exciting. But yeah, it was, uh, you know, became much more of, you know, the track was much more aligned into, you know, you're going to run a business unit, run a P&L. So I got out of the technology side of stuff and moved more into the business side, which was ultimately what I was looking for. That's awesome. I want to talk about that uh, in, in a minute. But before we do, I actually want to talk a little bit about user experience design and things like that. Um, because I think in our space, at least what we see a lot at MileMarker is the world of wealth management is so fragmented that I actually think there is a tremendous user experience design challenge. And that being, you know, you kind of have advisors that might be, as we, we call it, small on purpose. So maybe it's, you know, them and a partner, office manager or something like that. They have to do everything, right? They have to, they, you know, find the clients, deal with the clients, do performance reporting, do trading, do all of this stuff. Maybe they outsource some of it, but you have that. Then you have these platforms that advisors plug into where, you know, there's like operation staff at the platform that are doing these things and all of that sort of different stuff. And so I kind of just want you to riff a little bit on, you know, <laughs> what does it take to have great user experience, you know, because one of the challenges we solve at MyoMarker is that we're trying to take, you know, the data from all of these different platforms people are using and then aggregate them up into a nice user experience, you know, for specific jobs to be done so that it's not all commingled together. And, you know, we certainly live that challenge every day. So with the experience that you had, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about some of the challenges of UX design, especially at a company that touches every aspect of the industry like we just talked about. Absolutely. So I think there's two components of it. There's the one that's experienced visually. So let, that's the easiest one because most people can relate to it. I'll, I'll give you a good example. When you walk into a bank and you're going to open up a new account, right? I just recently did this. My wife's Canadian. I opened up a Canadian bank account. They, they described, we'd like you to come to the office, to the branch. I was like, what? Like, and I'm a millennial, so this is all disruptive to me. But I said, okay. So I sat in a chair in a drab office with overhead lighting. And all of that is an experience. All of that is designed on purpose. They hand you a document that's almost like the font's too small, it's jammed together, and you're looking at an 80-page document. That is technically designed by someone at some point in time, and it probably needs to be evolved. So if you are an advisor, your small shop or medium shop, when you hand someone a proposed portfolio or a financial plan or a, an estate plan, people process information in different ways but they process information very quickly, typically. And if you give them something that is very hard to read, 
the font, the logo, the design, all of that starts to add up. And then you go talk to another advisor and it's very well polished. You have a banking logo, for an example, a top right, looks crisp, one page. People make decisions and trade-offs all the time. But if you're showing me something that looks crisp, it's easy to process and go through, I think you have a higher likelihood of retaining or gaining a client. So that's that's the visual exterior side, right? That you're finally seeing on the interior side. It's the the whole flow of really understanding, as you mentioned, the jobs to be done. And by the way, I mean, like, take it with a grain of salt. I'm not an outstanding designer, but your guys' stuff at MyMarker is incredible. But I, I love I love it. It looks great. It, it's easy to flow through. Like you guys are doing it, the, which I like to say the right way. So there are some firms where they're going through the transformation, right? And it's not just the what do you see on the outside of a website or a document or a proposal, but it's also do we really understand the job to be done? The customer is trying to do. If I were to even go one step a little bit deeper than that, when I was 13, my dad took me to Palo Alto and took me to IDEO. And this is like the extreme case, but you know, they're a massive, you know, global leader into solving problems in a very creative way. And I walked in and they had, you know, spatulas and stuff all over the wall. And, you know, this young teenager, you're like, this is one of the coolest places I've ever seen. And they radically solve problems through what we'd call like innovation or design thinking, where you're constantly trying to solve something quick, break it, understand it, test it, feedback, et cetera. So I went all in. One of the core reasons I chose user experience design is because I was obsessed with understanding the needs and then really de-risking through feedback loops of, is this really going to work? I've seen companies say they do it, they don't. You know, I've seen companies say that we really care about the customer, but I don't see a lot of evidence. And then you see companies that truly dive deep on their needs, their jobs to be done, delighting the customers. And then it's felt customers come back. Adoption is higher. When you invest in ways to make customers happy, and I'm sure you and I can think of a hundred different ways, there's friction, the things we want to do, but the ones that make it easier, I, I think I call it table stakes now. Like this is not 15 years ago where you just need to be able to open something up and call someone on the phone. Like the bar has been raised so much higher by massive companies that people will say, can you just make this like Google? Can you make some sort of voice AI that I can just, and you look at people are like, wow. So companies have got to transform and keep up because the customer is changing. The needs are changing. The bar is being risen. That's all a good thing at the end of the day. At the end of the day, you should have happy customers that, you know, get both ends of the UX, which is what they're seeing and experiencing on the outer layer, but then on the inner layer, doing your homework and prioritizing, how do we know what we're building is going to solve the needs, solve for the friction actually complete the job to be done to the customers after. Easier said than done, but that's a very macro level. Um, I love it. On the two. And I, and I think it, I mean, you know, I didn't know this is what you were going to say, but I think it really does align with our thesis, which is advisors have a specific job to be done. And I think as you plug into infrastructure as an advisor, you are outsourcing some of those jobs to be done to other people. And so how do you kind of create these software experiences that are specific to your job to be done so that the user experience is not being muddied by the job to be done for other, you know, that other people are doing that you shouldn't be touching, right? Um, so one of the ones I have out there that I'm, you know, relatively bullish on, and I know some people won't like it, but I think you're going to start to see more and more advisors outsourcing financial planning cases to, to planning experts, right? You sure. can still run through the plan with your client. And I believe there's a lot of value in planning, right? But I think you are going to then send a case into people who are just absolute experts at 
the, the planning software, the planning process, and they're going to kind of bring you back one to three options for how to walk through with the client. And then you're going to deliver those planning options or maybe even bring that person in. But I just think the age of the advisor having to do all of these things is starting to go away. And, and there's going to be much more ways for an advisor to be supported because, you know, there's no doubt that the trend shows more and more people want advice than ever before. Well, you can't provide advice to, you know, two, three X the amount of households if you have to do all of the work. Um, and so I just think that's a massive trend that's coming, you know, and obviously AI is going to help. Technology is going to help all of that stuff. Couldn't agree more. It's it's even in some of the thoughts of when we were going to kick this thing off of, right, like the changing environment, right? Yeah. Like how, you know, you mentioned a, a number of things that are just so spot on. And look, the changing customer, the shifting of generational wealth, the shifting of needs, the shifting of people's roles and jobs. Like, you know, this is not static and fluid when we've maybe for a long period of time, have seen a lot of our industry be able to service a very static type of customer that stays with one advisor their entire career or one job for their entire career, one industry, their entire career. Things are very different today than they were 50 years ago in a lot of different ways, but it's going to continue to evolve. And technology today is going to be the catalyst to make things better. From yeah, my point of view. I totally agree. Um, so speaking of your point of view, I want to shift a little bit into where we're going as an industry. So I'm, I'm cheesily calling this a view from a cliff um, <laughs> and look out onto the horizon out there and, and tell us kind of what you're seeing uh, as the industry moves forward. Yeah. So a couple of things come to mind first, and this is just right on cue. You know, I call it retirement readiness. So that's something that, you know, as you look at towards the generation that's about to retire or getting close to retire, you know, you keep reading about, you know, industry articles or news about the lack of savings or the lack of wealth that's taking place. Many people, you know, I've chatted with are, are worried they're living on a fixed income and they're looking at coming back into the workforce, you know, due to liquidity constraints or they want healthcare again, to, you know, managed costs. These are things that impact real people on a daily basis. And I think our industry is extremely well positioned to help solve for that pain. You just mentioned on planning being outsourced, right? Like advisory practices becoming extremely focused on just retirement due to the size of the serviceability of that market and how a lot of the advice is given is somewhat generic in a way. And I realize there's lots of vendors and lots of tools, but the end of the day, if my core needs or my core job to be done is to get me through the year, because I had a plan, now that my plan has been turned upside down because of you know the macro events that are taking place and the cost of the cost of living adjustments, that's a real thing that people are experiencing. That it, that I think our ecosystem is going to be well positioned to help really solve some friction points there. So that's one, you know, and this is what keeps me up, you know, not keeps me up at night because I'm not ready to retire yet. But I think about my own retirement, right? And I think about how, you know, there is a lot at stake in what we do, uh, because this is something that is very wide in breadth. You know, it happens over a time horizon for most people. So that's number one. Another one is just navigating the amount of products that are out there. It's an incredible infographic made by the visual capitalist on LinkedIn and, uh, you know, sponsored ironically by Morningstar. Um, that there's over 1 million managed products out into the ethos today. And to me, that's extremely interesting to think about. I, I thought about a grocery store, right? Like I think people want options. They want to make trade-offs, but man, a lot of product that I'd say your average maybe investor might not be best positioned to make some of those decisions on where to take things. So just a lot of information, a lot of product, a lot of price, you know, differentiation and rules 
right? Of, of how these vehicles are set up or how the products are set up and where to, where to obtain them. So um, again, I think our industry is extremely well positioned to help navigate the sea of product and really tailor you know, specific portfolios or sleeves for those end investors. Another one would be access to private markets. I am extremely bullish and, and excited about this space, mainly because, you know, as we've seen public markets, you know, have some turbulence, let's call it, you know, there's a lot out there where it used to be a, you've got to have millions and millions of dollars to gain access to these private vehicles. And now we're seeing, you know, interval funds show up. Jack's like a mutual fund. It's traded, you know, core liquidity availability, where you're able to see private investors come in and say, I want access to something that has massive upside for a longer term play for $200,000 check. We're seeing things down to 10, $15,000 entry points. So, you know, at the end of the day, that is massive, right? Like we're talking the heart and soul of the U.S. economy is in the private markets, right? Like maybe $100 million revenue and above, like that's the core. How do I get access to that? Years and years and years ago, it used to be very like internal circles only that gain access to this extremely upside um, driven private credit, private equity, REITs, venture capital, et cetera. That's starting to democratize. That's going to have a profound impact on people as they continue to build their wealth, as they continue to look at options, the more optionality that's out there is a good thing. So the hurdles in the past of like going through subscription documents, K-1s, the taxation on it, we're seeing things change in our industry that is just incredible. And I am like, I you know, can maybe see it and feel like I am extremely passionate about this stuff because it's taking things that were not really a option and being, you know, starting to come down from the ultra, you know, high net worth on down, we'll probably eventually get to mass affluent, um, which is very, very exciting. So uh, that's one more. And then one more is just like the generational wealth transfer. You know, that's one that we talk about a lot and, you know, hear it, you hear it, but you know, I hear and, and read that, you know, one of the biggest reasons why someone will leave their advisor is that they don't understand me. That's one that continues to pop up in my mind is that they don't understand my needs and they don't really get me. And trust me, when I walked into that, that large bank in Canada, I was like, they don't understand me. I should not be sitting here, but I had to sit there. Like at the end of the day, if firms are going to try to reach gen two and gen three, they're going to have to start thinking about how one, their services, their total experience as an advisory practice, whether it's a breakaway that's brand new or a newly established RIA, they're going to have to figure out how can I go and really be able to keep that next transfer when it takes place, you know, this that AUM under management, right? So that's, that's another thing that, that I'm thinking about. And the last, and not least, and we kind of touched about it earlier, is just the, the millennial change in Gen Z, Gen, you know, Gen X, Gen Z lifestyle changes. We're going to see a massive change. You know, when, when we're older, Kyle, and we're, you know, we're, we're talking about all this stuff that this happened, you know, some, some many moons ago, you know, things will be different, you know, different needs, different preferences, different goals. You know, when I ask people, you know, hey, uh, if you weren't doing what you were doing today, what would you do? And I have about a 50-50 response rate of I am doing exactly what I want to do versus, oh, I would do something completely different. And I mentioned earlier that people are leaving industries, they're leaving jobs, they're moving. I'm a complete example of someone that's lived all over the place. We're not doing things from a behavioral standpoint as people the same way we were 50, 40 years ago. So that's a huge change that I think, again, our industry will be well-positioned for those that transform and change to meet the needs of the next generation. You know, and this is going to have impact not just on individuals, but as our economy macro-wise as well. Great, great viewpoints on, on where things are going. I, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. 
Um, and I couldn't agree more. I think the the access to private markets is one that we've talked about a, a good bit on the podcast. It seems like it's a massive trend, um, especially too. One thing I don't think you mentioned is, you know, companies are also staying private longer, right? So it's like, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you'd be able to get access to that company maybe when they were at 100 million in revenue because they would go public. And now you could really enjoy that ride up. Almost nobody does that anymore, right? There's so much money in the private markets to help them stay private, to help them all of, you know, all of that stuff. So how, okay, great. How do you get someone, you know, who traditionally would have been able to put $15,000 into a public stock that went public at $100 million in revenue? Well, how do you get them to be able to do the same thing? Um, I think that's excellent. I think there's lots of people doing interesting things around the management of K1s and investor stuff too, because that is a headache, right? You know, um, so I lo- love those comments. And, and I think, too, your comment on advisors understanding clients as a means of keeping them in this generational wealth transfer is further supported by what we were talking about earlier of, well, yeah, you got to get all this other stuff off your plate so that you can spend more time, you know, behaviorally understanding those clients and personalizing to those clients. It's a lot of work, right? It's a lot of work to get to understand the differences between Cliff and Kyle and, you know, our significant others and, and all of, you know, the, those different nuances. And every moment that you spend trading or, you know, figuring out, you know, asset allocation or portfolio allocation is a moment being taken away from understanding those nuances. And so, you know, I think that's that's going to happen. And so, uh, well, well stated, man. <laughs> it's all interrelated in some ways. Um, and it's exciting at the end of the day. I love this yeah. stuff. This podcast is brought to you by Termcast. We make game changing content for fintech and financial services companies. Learn more at Termcast.com. Let's let's shift a little bit to to hearing what you're up to now. So you recently started a new role at a company called Future Vault as the chief growth officer. So help us understand what Future Vault's doing and the role that they play in everything we just talked about. Absolutely. Super exciting things happening over here. Kind of the the table stake or the setting the table a bit is, you know, look, we're based out of Toronto, Canada, about 40, you know, give or take FTEs. Super exciting thing is we've got three patents granted, one patent pending, two trademarks. That was something that I, I learned right immediately upon interviewing here. We're in the business really to help companies with document and data. I like to use the word insights, but you know, currently we're serving customers with document ingestion. You're able to ingest documents that is structured, unstructured, the metadata that's on those documents, bring that in, servicing front office, back office, middle office. So we serve multiple different personas with bringing in documents which are either at the business level or at the personal level. So we have some firms that are massive that are doing things about you know, client onboarding, you know, trade order execution, and you know, really the value that we're we'll able to provide those firms is really on the onboarding of the documents ingesting coming inside. And then on the the let's call it more front of the office, you know, really, as I mentioned earlier, like finding a way to really get to know the generation two or three is through giving them suggested documents that either the household or household family member might need at a certain point on the along the time horizon. So, you know, a great example of that is that, you know, look, we have a new family member, you know, hey, I've noticed that it was brought up in my notes uh, in my CRM. And, you know, hey, here's some suggested documents on getting started on a 529 plan. So at the end of the day, we make things easier and more efficient for advisory firms and, and their advisors to execute document, you know, exchange, but also getting much deeper and a personalized level with their end clients. So we serve multiple different types of personas. 
you know, we have value propositions to both customers and the advisor. So it's an exciting space. We're, we're headed much more into a space that's driven on insights and analytics. I call document management table stakes. Our founder and chairman, you know, really believes that, you know, I think he's, he's onto something where, you know, everyone's going to have a digital, let's call it wallet in a way where if you are managing multiple different types of businesses, or you only have your own personal life, you have it in one place. And we think that having that connected to your advisory side or wealth side of, of the practice is only going to help, right? So some people use portal, some people use exchange, regardless of terminology here, our business is serving, you know, North American clients, large and small with the ingestion and then access um, and insights of that data and, and uh, documents. I love that. So for those who are in the initiated in the space, you know, you probably get this a lot, but is this, you know, something that, you know, they would use in place of uh, a laser fiche or are they replacing maybe box or uh, SharePoint or, you know, something along that, like, you know, or is this an, is this a net add to some of the stuff that they're using? So where would you see if I'm, if I'm an advisory firm thinking, oh, that sounds pretty cool, Cliff, like, where does that fit in the stack for me? Yeah. So it's a great question. You know, we hear some of the names you've mentioned as like, hey, we're considering, right? So we're, we're in the middle of a, a vendor switch. We're looking at you and one of the vendors that you mentioned there. I'd say that the, the most intriguing thing is that we have use cases where if it's just all they want to do is just document storage, like we're up head to head, with, you know, like a, we're using SharePoint today, right? And, you know, look, we've got some regulatory concerns and we, we want to get this into a very secure um, vendor, you know, that's in the cloud. We're in AWS, for example. You know, we, we want this to be a safe and secure environment for our entire practice. So the chief compliance officer is driving that conversation. We also hear people that are on, you know, the check, chief technology side that's really focused on, you know, trader execution or making sure that a, an advisor is able to recommend a product because they've gone through the right training. It's a good question, but we, we also provide so much unique value that you're not going to get out of a SharePoint or you're not going to get out of a box. Uh, it just depends on how can we curate the right packaging for your needs. And if it's us versus box, I think we have a pretty good chance of uh, taking them on head on with what we have today. So if you're an advisory firm and you don't do much, you know, talking with clients, we can serve you. If you are dealing with clients day to day and your core technology is, let's say, portfolio uh, management tool, you're using CRM financial planning, like we are across the entire workflow where anytime something's passed between you and the end client, not only can we compliantly store that, we can also generate insights as well, which we're in the middle of developing something with AI, which is extremely exciting to give advisory firms like, hey, FYI, I see that half of your book of business has a dependent, but no 529 plan. Like, let's talk about that, right? Like we're calling him Scotty. You know, Scotty's uh, showing up and saying like, hey, Kyle, like if you're home office, we can x-ray through the entire RA practice and say, why are people in Stone Mountain, Georgia at the practice doing 529 plans at 5x versus the people in Vermont. What's going on? So I'll conclude with a lot of technology is binary, like the documents are in there or they're not. We're transforming and we already can do this, but we're going on a track that's much more of not only will you take your documents and ingest it and unstructured data, structured data, et cetera, we're going to start giving you the insights on your practice that you can then take action on or send to your CRM to make an advisor follow up on it. So the goal is personalization. The goal is to service the advisor, the home office, and the end clients in a meaningful way. So we have multiple value points depending on the firm. Excellent. I love it. Uh, well, I'm sure people will be checking that out uh, as, they, as they listen to this. I think that's cool. So when doing research for this podcast episode, 
I came across something that that you wrote, um, and I wanted to just talk about it. So I'm going to actually read your words here, and then we'll let you go a little bit deeper. But you said, while enjoying one of the countless espressos, it struck me that the lessons I've learned can be applied to professional growth and inspiring others to pursue their passions. Here are some heartfelt insights that you've discovered. And you have five heartfelt insights here, which were selfless leadership, living in the moment, encouraging authenticity, uh, inspiring a sense of purpose, and leading by example. I would love for you to unpack some of that for the audience and you know, maybe encourage them a little bit through your five heartfelt insights here. Oh, yeah. I, can, I vividly know exactly what you're talking about there. I just got back from Italy earlier this year for a wedding, and I took my son the first time to Italy, which was incredible. Look, at the end of the day, there's so much content out there. And, you know, I, I don't pretend to be a blog, someone that sends, you know, thought leadership out to everyone weekly. But at the end of the day, it was probably the emotion of you know, eating such wonderful food and spending some time with my family there. But some of those things that come to mind is just the purpose driven, right? You know, even my own team and people that I've, you know, helped mentor and even being mentored by, by people myself is just people keep telling me about purpose. If you're waking up every day and you don't feel the purpose of what you're doing and the impact that you're having. Like that could be because no one's asked you and no one said, Hey, like, why are you here? What are you showing up day to day to do here? It's so easy to get caught up in the spreadsheets and the roadmaps and the sales calls. But at the end of the day, like we're human beings, like, what are you here to do? What's your purpose, man? And, and, and that's something that I not only have had challenged on myself, but I challenge others of like, what are you here to do? Kind of going back earlier about like, if you weren't doing what you're doing today, what would you do? And I hear all kinds of stuff. And I ask, sometimes I dig a bit deeper and go, what's stopping you? How can I help? Right? So selfless leadership, like, you know, look, I've had a lot of managers in my career and, you know, I've interacted with a lot of different people and those that tend to do, they don't say this, but there is no work beneath them. People that are willing to roll up their sleeves, like it inspires people knowing how to lead from the front, lead from the rear, lead from the, the field. People are able to inspire others right through selfless leadership. And it truly inspires me, you know, being a leader and an executive and trying to instill that magic in your teams, right? To, you know, say like, look, like I'm never going to ask you to do something that I wouldn't do myself. And that's just my own kind of MO. It's just, it's kind of how I was raised. And then, you know, one more is just leading by example. I consider, you know, myself to be very fortunate. You know, my family background is, you know, firework makers from Italy and, you know, brewer from Hungary, from Budapest. Like, I'm very aware of like how hard things were and how hard things can be and how leading people by example of like, look, good things can happen to those. You know, obviously there's some luck involved and in, in who you know, but at the end of the day, like when you put your best foot forward and you try really hard to make an impact, I notice it instantly. And I constantly ask my mentors, like, what do you think about what I'm doing? What do you think about where I'm going? You know, the advisory board I'm sitting on, like, how can I add more value to the founder and their team? You know, the corporate development activity, like, what do you think about that? So I get really pushed and led by people that have laid, you know, track down before me and just leading through example for those that are growing in their careers, you know, vice presidents in sales, vice president in business development, vice VPs in product. How can you lead by example to help them achieve their goals? And, you know, look, at the end of the day, I'm always looking for my next espresso, but I'm always thinking about, you know, when can I truly check out a bit, read a physical newspaper and sit somewhere in the sun, preferably somewhere in the Mediterranean. <laughs> I, I, I love pasta. But, you know, at the end of the day, to get there, you got to do your job. 
you've got to be prepared. You've got weight on your shoulders to deliver for a board, for investors, for the people we serve. So, you know, to do that, you've got to lead by example, you know, so those are three that I would uh, say and unpack that come to mind first, but, you know, be a leader. I always, I said this at Morningstar and I say this now, like I've always inspired to be the manager and be the executive and leader that people want to come work for. And I always tell them, you're not working for me. We're working together, right? Like this is a team, you know, I've played sports my entire life. There is no one, there is no I, like we are going to do this together. I am going to help you the way people helped me make you a better individual. So you can be a better team player, no matter what you want to do. If you don't even want to work in this industry, I'll help you. You want to go start your own business? I'll help you. We're human beings, right? We have feelings, we have emotions, we have things going on in our personal lives, we have families. I'm here to make your life better. And if I can do that in a really nice, polite way, preferably depending on how many espressos I've had in the morning, I can be a little cranky, but my goal is to wake up every day and make an impact on those around me. Um, and that's hopefully selfless and purpose-driven. I love it. Thanks for sharing. Those are truly heartfelt uh, insights that you've discovered. And I think it's true. I mean, there's so many things that are constantly going on figuring out in a way to be authentically grateful for what you have. I'll even just share, a, this is going to sound like a weird thing, but I, I dealt with a moment just yesterday where we went and got groceries. You know, first of all, we picked them up. So I didn't even have to go into the store, you know, to get them. It's like I went, they, you know, they put them in the car and I came home and I found myself in this like moment of frustration. I'm like, oh, like lugging these groceries in, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And I got hit with this moment of like, you know, I'm just very grateful to, to be able to, to have this food, to be able to, you know, to be grabbing groceries out of the car, to have a full fridge. Like I know there's a lot of people who aren't and that might sound a little cheesy to some people, but taking just 20 seconds to be grateful for the thing that it's like was, you know, causing me quote unquote inconvenience in that moment. Um, it reframed that whole moment for me yesterday and, uh, you know, kind of set things on a different path. And so I think that's a, an important lesson to learn. I would just add too that I couldn't agree more is just finding your motivation, right? Yeah. Like that's one that I push people on all the time. My motivators are my grandfather's came from nothing, you know, like just, you know, looking at the pictures when we go back of how little people have in the small little rooms in Southern, Southern Sicily and Italy. Like when you see that stuff, it, it really helps you kind of frame like, where am I at today? What do I have? And then, you know, how it just gives you the joys of the things you have in your life. Right. So the, my motivators are the people that came before me and I'm here because of them, obviously, but their background, how hard they worked to give my parents and ultimately myself the opportunities. And, you know, I'm fully aware of that. And it, it drives me daily to make them proud. They're not here today, unfortunately, but, you know, a lot of their legacy lives through me. And that's, you know, that's what motivates me is making them proud, even though they're not here. Well stated, man. And we'll kind of leave it there. So we're going to wrap up with our final segment that we always do, which is called the Mile Marker Minute. These are lightning round questions. So I've got uh, five questions for you today. The goal is for us to try to get them all answered in under a minute. Um, okay. You know, we won't hold you to it, but lightning round questions. Are you ready to roll? Ready. Let's go. All right. Andiamo. Uh, first question for you. I see a stack of books behind you. So this is a good one. What is the best book you read in 2023? Uh, easily um, Robert Greene. What is it? 40 Laws of Power? Right here. Yeah. These are all Robert, Robert Greene books. They're incredible next to Aristotle and Plato. But I would say the Robert Greene books are, have the most profound impact in my life. Love it. Second question. What is one thing that firms who want to grow should focus on in 2024? Oh, wow. Okay. That's a great question. I would relook at your customer base. So mm. I would completely look at your customer base as we see sales cycles extending, as we see 
you know, capital deployment being hyper-focused on, CAGR rates potentially coming down. Go look at your customers, hyper-focused on gross margins and gross retention. I love it. Third question, if you could travel back in time, what period would you go to? <laughs> oh, man. Um, you know, I've heard my whole life, I'm an old soul. I would probably go back to, it's a toss-up between 1920, just frankly due to the clothing, and then yep. probably 1960s also due to the clothing and shoes. And it would probably be in Europe. It would not be in the States. It would be Europe. Excellent. I love it. Four, on average, how many espressos do you have per day? Great question. I take this very seriously. I typically have about three to four a day. I try to cap off unless I'm running later that day or going for a, a cycling later that day. I'll have five. But um, yeah, I'll have macchiatos until uh, about noon, 11 o'clock noon. And then I'll probably just switch to espresso and then maybe one after lunch. Man, that's, that's amazing. You, <laughs> you are fueled by caffeine for sure. All right. And final question for the interview. Uh, if someone could only go to one place in Italy for a week, where would you send them? Just one? Yep. I mean, okay. Sicilian bias here. You're always going to hear that. I, would, I mean, it's, it's hard to say because it got blew up by White Lotus, but Taramina is just magical. You're on the top of the hill. There is a Greek amphitheater that is like the core centerpiece of the town. You're overlooking the sea and the food, the freshness of food, the freshness of oranges. You're right next to, you're near Etna, so an active volcano, the pistachios and the granita. So those are the things that I think about. And it is just truly stunning. What a great way to wrap it up, man. Uh, this has <laughs> been a wonderful, wide ranging conversation from the future of our industry to heartfelt insights on, on how to enjoy your life more, be grateful for your life and what you have uh, to some great uh, insights shared in the Mile Marker Minute. So Cliff, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. Honor to be here. Good to spend time with you. And uh, it was just great. Absolutely. All right, everybody. This is another episode of The Connected Advisor. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you know when the next one comes up and we will see you on the next recording. Thanks so much.